Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast where women get really honest about surviving and thriving in what often feels like a man's world. My guests are wonder women from the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real problem. I know this only too well as a female Southeast Asian mechanical engineer. I'm kind of a minority within a minority. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara an engineer turned broadcaster. Throughout my career, I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation. And through my TV work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. Talking to these exceptional ladies has often left me feeling empowered, hopeful, and excited about life. I believe silence will enrich you too. Every week, a woman in STEM shares her unique experiences with absolutely no pressure in having to promote her accomplishments or guard her impressive reputation. Because I've come to realize that everyone is just way more open and relaxed when they're anonymous. So I deliberately disguise my guest voices so that we're just connecting as human beings rather than human doings. It's my hope that you really relate to what we chat about today. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of tech strategy. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on this show. My pleasure. I'm so curious to know what a tech strategist does. So what I do is I work with large companies to try to help them identify new opportunities in tech. So... I spend a lot of my day speaking to tech startups, uh, to VCs, um, go to events and conferences to try to understand what the latest trends in technology are and then help um, big corporates get on top of those and, and understand what strategic initiatives they need to launch to make sure that they're not falling behind in, in the world of tech. Oh, wow. So what are the latest trends in technology? I'm not going to say blockchain because it drives me absolutely mental when people do that. Um, <laughs> So I think that there's sort of two layers of, of how I see technology. So one of them is the underlying level of infrastructure, which is transforming hugely, but often doesn't get talked about. And then there's the consumer layer in terms of what's available to people, essentially. Mm. So um, when I talk about the base layer of technology, we're talking about things like 5G, um, like the new kinds of network services that are coming out some of the technology that's powering smart cities. So things that are going to be affecting everyone's day-to-day life, but that the average person might not be knowing anything about. When the, the consumer layer is is the services that are going to be available to people essentially because of these um, these kinds of technologies. So um, it might be new mobility solutions that are being powered by 5G or new communication services. So um, if we think about something like VR, for example, um, at the moment, you have to be pretty much on a, on a wired connection to make that work. Um, and there's still latency in things like games. Mm. Uh, 5G is aiming to solve that. So it's not impossible to imagine something in not the too far future where you could have a mixed reality headset powered by 5G that was um, that people were sort of wearing around their day-to-day lives. I'm not sure that's going to happen, um, but I, I certainly think that there's a lot of interesting trends that point to that being something that is certainly possible. Yeah, and what's so crazy about that is um, the surge of people playing games with each other from around the world. Absolutely. I For a recent project, I looked at Fortnite, which is just incredible in terms of what it's been able to accomplish 
in terms of community and how much it's become not really about the game. So that um, the, the Marshmallow concert that happened in Fortnite, it was one of the most talked about things at my office, certainly for a while, um, just because of the audience it was able to command in uh, an environment that really had nothing to do with music at all. Wow. Gosh, your job sounds so fascinating because um, you get to really kind of decide what has legs and what doesn't get funding, basically, right? Yeah, I think we're, I mean, I'm a little bit less involved in funding decisions because we're not an investment arm, although we, we do advise investors sometimes. I think it's really in helping to understand what can have scale. So a lot of companies um, that aren't consumer facing get scale via partnerships with corporates. And we try to help facilitate those and really try to understand what trends are going to be driving the growth of the future. And also to take some of the um, mystery out of other trends where our clients actually aren't going to benefit. So uh, we had a client come to us about blockchain uh, a couple of years ago and said, what should we be doing here? And we said, uh, nothing. It's not for you. Um, a lot of it's hype right now. And, um, you know, I believe with blockchain, there will be things that become useful in the future about it. And I think that it has um, real potential applications and things like supply chain and, and financial services, but that doesn't mean that every industry should be jumping on the back of it. And I think that there was a lot of money that was wasted just because people didn't really understand it and felt like they had to be doing something with it, even though there was actually nothing in it for them. And so part of our job is mm -hmm. to demystify some of those technologies and tell people when actually they can take a little break and maybe miss this one out. Oh my gosh, it feels like you're actually the key holder to the future of technology. I would like to believe that is my role. Obviously, it's it's probably less glamorous on a day-to-day -day basis um, than that. But but yeah, I mean, it's it's really exciting to be able to go and speak to very senior people um, at corporates who are decision makers and kind of help advise them on either what they should be doing next. How do you get into something like that? I, the one thing that I'm convinced about is that there's no one set path to this. And my company actually doesn't employ that many people with tech backgrounds. So I'm rare in that I actually have come up through tech um, throughout my career. So I did my, my degrees are both in engineering. Um, and then I worked for a telco for a number of years. And so I've got a really rich technical background. We've got people who've come to it from a variety of, of different kinds of backgrounds. And I think that what really ties us together is a real passion mm. for um, analytical thought, uh, deriving insight from unstructured information. Um, obviously, we all care about tech a lot and we all find the world of startups very exciting. But other than that, I actually think that because we're not building the technology ourselves, there's a lot of different backgrounds you can come to it from. And I actually, I, I think that one of the things that I've noticed um, about being a woman in tech and also about women in tech in general is that sometimes we're doing tech and we don't know sure. it. Um, so I think that women who are in what I would consider to be technical jobs sometimes don't even realize that's what they're doing because they don't see in themselves the potential to be technologists. Right. So I say um, you, you get into it by thinking tech is interesting and by being able to take unstructured information about technology and turn that into the kind of insights that are going to help people make uh, interesting decisions about where they should take mm. their companies. You've gone down a very traditional route of being in tech. I, I have and I haven't, I think, because one of, and I guess I'll share this as a story because I tell it to everyone, that 
I have been told my whole life that I'm doing it wrong. Mm. And um, so I think that one of the messages that I always try to get across to people who are younger than me and trying to figure out what they should be doing is that there is no um, right or wrong way to do things as long as you're following things that you're passionate about and are either good at or have the capacity to be good at. Um, and I say that because no matter how hard I try to be a professional basketball player, like it's never going to happen for me because I'm too short. So there is there is some some natural ability in there, but I think it's it's much less important in intellectual fields. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I came up through mechanical engineering, but got really interested in psychology. And so, um, you know, when I was applying to graduate programs, people were saying the fact that your CV is so weird and you've got this combination of hardcore engineering and psychology isn't really going to resonate with grad programs. But my PhD program loved it because um, it was a design program. And so they uh, were really excited um, to have someone with that combination Mm. of skills. And, you know, when I was applying for scholarships, I was told the same thing, that my background wasn't traditional enough, that people weren't really going to know what to do with me. That it was the same thing when I applied for jobs um, about having a, a very sporadic kind of CV. And what I would say is that it's definitely harder to get some kinds of jobs if you look a bit different. But for a lot of jobs, that's mm. what makes you stand out. Yeah. And I have come up through tech, but not at all in a, in a traditional way. And my trajectory has been mm. quite winding. But that the most important thing is being able to spin an interesting story around it and really explain to people how you've gotten where you are, what you're interested in, and, and how that's going to help you do what, whatever you want to mm. do next. And and actually, the things that um, are non-traditional about us are usually the most attractive features to anyone who's hiring. Right. And because you have had such a windy career journey, has that ever made you doubt yourself? All the time. I think I have just as much imposter syndrome as the next person really um and i think it's just so easy to see the gaps in your own career and accomplishment because you're comparing yourself against someone who's taken a very different path yeah um and i I think that self-doubt is bad if it's debilitating but sometimes constructive if it's motivating Mm. so sometimes i get disappointed in myself because i haven't accomplished something but then that also makes me think well there's no reason i can't go and accomplish that thing and sometimes it's a motivating factor to go and do something. Well, that sounds like a good balance. Yeah, but I, I would say that like I had the most interesting experience about six months ago. I was giving uh, a presentation to a very, very senior team at a client with a colleague who's senior to me. And they asked us to submit biographies of ourselves ahead of time um, so they could sort of seed the conversation um, with this room full of like very, very senior people. And so... I saw my colleague's bio and she's very, very accomplished. And I was sort of riddled with sort of self-doubt that you get when you're like, I'm going to sound so unaccomplished next to this person. And then I wrote my bio and I I wrote it honestly. I didn't pad it with anything. And then I started taking stuff out thinking like, well, gosh, this is going to sound too pretentious or this will sound Hmm. too name droppy. And then I just saw myself and looked at what I was doing and I was thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm editing my own bio because I think it sounds too, um, too uh, impressive and I think it will turn people off because they'll think that I'm just you know trying to big myself up and yet here I am being intimidated by someone else's accomplishment yeah. I just realized how ridiculous that is but I think it happens to women all the time it, does. it really does well it certainly happens to me um I always feel like I haven't achieved much compared to most and then you know if I'm giving a lecture somewhere or I'm being introduced and they reel off what I've done I'm like oh my God, I've done quite a lot. (laughs) 
I think all women should have to write their own bio on a six monthly basis and then just like read it back to themselves and be like, holy shit, I'm great. Yeah, because I think the problem with that is that we don't stop and reflect on how far we've come. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's such a good thing to do. It's kind of like a gratitude list. Um, no yeah. one ever really writes gratitude lists. But when we do, it's like, oh, my gosh, I, there's a lot that I have to be grateful for. Yeah, it's it's gratitude. And I think it's also reminding us that it's okay to be like really impressed by ourselves. Mm. And I, I do think that there's this level of humility that's expected by women and, and also this level of, um, you know, t- thinking about who else made stuff possible. And I think that we can, we obviously should express gratitude to those people who've helped us along the way, as we all mm. should. But I think that we should take more time to think, like, I did this, it was me. Um, I am great and it's okay to feel like incredibly self-satisfied and smug about my own accomplishments and like maybe not to tell everyone that you're feeling smug but it's like just to know it ourselves the feeling is so empowering like I am actually phenomenal uh it's so funny that we're talking about this because recently I took a Myers-Briggs test what are you INFJ-T I don't, I don't even know what the dash means. Turbulent. Anyways, carry on. Tur- something about turbulence, which turbulence. I thought was really okay. funny as a fluid dynamicist. But I mean, <laughs> I, love but I, I mean, it would have been better if it was lamina. <laughs> but um, no, I just, in, in, in getting that analysis, it honestly made me relax about being an introvert because, you know, I am so shy by nature. And it was kind of like, really? I've spent a whole chunk of my life feeling really bad about being so shy you don't come across as shy at all um if that makes you feel any better uh, well it's so weird because I mean thank you but I, I think what I'm trying to say is that sometimes we have like we walk around feeling bad about certain parts of our personality and don't realize that actually all of us have so much to give to the world. We just need to appreciate ourselves. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I've, I've reflected on this a lot about sort of like owning yourself and that there's... Um, yeah. There are these people that... Well, there's, there's sort of like really weird people in the world, right? And I would class myself as, as a sort of proudly weird person. But there are people out there that are much weirder than me. Um, <laughs> and... What's always impressed me is that... What are you, by the I way? Am, ooh, interesting question. So I am an INTJ last time I took it, but I'm always somewhere on that borderline between I and E. But having done a lot of psychology research, there's so much misunderstanding about what an introvert actually is. And it doesn't have to do with like shyness yes. or social anxiety, really. It has to do Not at to all. the extent with which you find external... Like how stimulated you are by your environment, essentially. So, you know, totally. I find... I really hate loud music. I don't like crowded places, but I actually really like people, just not for like extended periods of time. And I sort of need to recharge. Snap. And oh my god, I totally. It's like they have these quizzes. It's like, do you like going out with large groups of people? And I'm like, it depends. Are they my friends or are they strangers? Because the answer is going to be different. And I just find quizzes like that so reductive because it's sort of it, it. One, the results don't tend to be like massively internally correlated even in with the same people taking the quiz because it depends on like your mood and what you're thinking about um but but also just because I think that the answer so much depends on you know what situation you're in I mean I have a group of really close friends that I know really well and I'll happily spend like a whole weekend day with them 
But if you were like, would you like to spend a day with eight strangers? I would say that is my nightmare. And no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, as you were giving your Myers-Briggs result, I was thinking, I wonder if it's a mechanical engineering thing. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. What we probably share in common as mechanical engineers is that we really love to ponder over stuff. I mean, I just love being in my head, working things out, like finding solutions to problems. And I've always felt really bad about that because I've always felt like a bit of a hermit. But actually, we kind of need people like that in the world. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm antisocial. Yeah. And like, what is antisocial? Like, I think that the way that you need to be to think is just a completely unique thing to you. Mm. And I, I think that people can give you crap about it but then retroactively really value people like that so I mean if you think about someone like Einstein who's like revered basically being like a hermit yeah no one is ever like oh if only Einstein had been a bit more social (laughs) yeah you know it's just like own how you are exactly and that is why I'm bringing this up because you mentioned you know I think women should be writing their CVs or their bios like every six months and it really is about self-acceptance And and I think I'll, I'll come back to that point about weird people, because I feel like there's two types of weird people, people who are uncomfortable with the fact that they're weird mm. and people who own the fact that they're weird. Yeah. And the people who own their weirdness are like everyone loves them. And people will say like, oh, you know, Bob, he's so weird. But then you also kind of love him because he's entertaining and, um, you know, he's different than everyone else. And the fact that he's kind of got this quirky personality is actually a, a draw. Mm. And so... I I just think there's so much power in being completely comfortable with who you are to the extent that you like those features. Yeah. I wonder what the major difference is between people that own their weirdness and people that don't. Do you think it's something to do with people pleasing? Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think part of it is self-confidence. I think some of it is upbringing. Mm. Um, And I think that some of it has to do with, you know, whether or not you want to actually fit in. Yeah. And I don't know how you get to be the kind of person who owns your weirdness because I was very blessed to be basically popped out of the womb, a complete weirdo with very accepting parents. So I think I got the luck of the draw really with that one. Um, And then. Right. So um, you popped out weird, but you were always given the message that it's okay to be weird growing up. Yeah, like, it. this is such a funny story, but, like, my parents always used to let me pick out my own clothes, and the worst thing they could do to me was to take, like, if I got grounded, what they do when I was a kid is, like, dress me, and that was my nightmare, <laughs> which I know sounds super weird, because I, I don't give two craps about clothes right now, but some of, they have pictures of me going to school in, like, the most heinous <laughs> outfits you've And it was your seen. choice. But they were just, like... It was my choice. And I liked the weird, like, polka dot leggings and stripey shirt, you know. And I I had, like, this little, like, fro, like, my haircut (laughs) was appalling. And they were just like, well, like, whatever, if that's what she wants to do, then, I mean, she's not hurting anyone, she's expressing herself. And it gave me this sense of, like, being very empowered to be whoever I was. So does that mean you've always owned your weirdness then? I think, I mean, I could I could lie and be like, I have always been completely comfortable being like a slightly unpopular weirdo. I think that I have most of the time, but that doesn't mean it was always easy. 
And there have been times in my life when I wanted things and I knew that my weirdness was preventing me from getting them, you know, at least immediately. Um, but in retrospect, I mean, Ooh, like what? I think that there's there's always been these sort of social humps that I had to get over, if that makes sense. So when I was starting like primary school and I was like the really badly dressed girl who talked about science while all of her peers talked about, you know, Barbie dolls or whatever, um, you know, I didn't get invited to any birthday parties. And it was really hard, like, watching everyone else get invited to birthday parties. And there was a part of me that wanted to have closer friends, but also, like, this much stronger, like, very uncompromising part of me that refused to change for other people. And so there was kind Mm -hmm. of, I I think that, in a sense, I was always that way. But, you know, you do have to kind of logic yourself into it and get get used to that. And there have been those moments, I think, of, like, social um, discomfort well, you remind yourself that it's okay, that this is the way that you are. And it was the same then when I was in, at school, you know, I really, really wanted a boyfriend, but like that clearly wasn't happening for me because I was the weird girl. So, and you know, now obviously like that, these things pass, I think school is quite a challenging time. And now I have an amazing group of friends and a great life partner. And, you know, so those things did sort of come together for me, but I think it's a trade-off, like it happens later, but when it happens, it happens better. Mm. Yeah, I mean, those formative years um, when you're just kind of like finding your identity can be quite brutal. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, I I mean... It doesn't sound like it nudged you in an inauthentic direction, though. Never permanently. I think I tried things on, you know, I tried dressing in a more normal way. Um, but it was really uncomfortable, so I stopped. <laughs> or I tried, um, you know, I experimented with doing makeup. I experimented with trying to be interested in the things that other people were interested in. But um, I think that it felt it felt like physically uncomfortable to try to be a person that I wasn't. And mm. so for me, I was just I was I would love to say like, oh, I just had the strength of character to be true to myself. I think I honestly couldn't. Um, I've just always had to be whoever I am. Oh my gosh. I mean, as you're describing all these things, I'm comparing what you're saying to my experiences. And as a kid growing up, I don't know if it's something to do with being like ethnic minority or whatever, but I absolutely longed to fit in. And I absolutely didn't fit in no matter what. And I think, you know, it really took me on a different path. Um, And so I kind of I'm a bit envious hearing that you were like nope I am absolutely going to be me every single time even if it means I'm unpopular for a bit you know yeah I think I think it was also like a lot of stubbornness though like I've got a very fucky vibe to the way that I I I live my life and I think that um I, I I don't know I think I always wanted to be accepted but I don't know that I ever wanted to fit in and I think that was just like a natural thing for me but I also think that I was so lucky in that I had role models of people who didn't fit in Mm. who could then you know my parents were both super nerds uh they are still both super nerds Um, oh really are they in STEM they're both in STEM yeah uh my my they're actually both software engineers they both have PhDs in science I'm like the dumb one it's really weird being like the dumb one in your family where you're like my parents are more accomplished than I will ever be (sighs) um well we'll see I've got some time I've got some time (laughs) (laughs) but like they're you know they they do crazy stuff with sort of supercomputers and very um very deep tech and so I one I grew up with that and two um you know my parents were always 
very quick to remind me that the most successful people were those who had something unique about them and that most people who were successful later in life didn't really fit in growing up. Oh my and so gosh, what an awesome it, message. It was, it was really good, but I think that actually I still have to remind myself of that now because it's so easy to compare yourself to other people and look at, um, at what other people have that you don't. And I just, um, I think we have to remember that like everyone else has the same crippling insecurity that we do. Mm. And it doesn't really matter what it's what it's about. And I've been so surprised when I've had um, friends where I say like, oh, I'm always wish I were more like you in this way, you know, in a flattering way, not in like a weird way. And they're like, oh, that's so weird because I wish I were more like you on the same dimension. Mm. And you just realize that like it's so easy to get wrapped up in your own head in what you're not like that you forget that all these other people are aspiring to have the qualities that you have and that, you know, we never really know what's going on inside someone else's head. Mm. Sometimes I think that I overanalyze. Do you think there's a danger of being overly analytical as women in STEM? I I love the fact that I overanalyze. I just think that you need to know when it's gotten harmful. Mm. So I think that you, you know, those stupid questions that they ask at job interviews, like, what's your greatest weakness? Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where you basically pick something that's sometimes a weakness but also sometimes a strength and I think like that what? most of our personality characteristics are like that oh my favorite one to do is I'm like oh I'm really impatient but it's just because I like to get things done so I'm always like really quick to like push for things to move right. faster so like see weakness mm. and strength um but I actually think that all of our per- personality characteristics are like that so I'm I'm like you right I'm super analytical like I overanalyze everything I go back and torture myself over things that I said mm-hmm. like four years ago and be like had I just done this one thing yeah. differently um so I think I think it's quite natural to do that and apparently that's a very strong characteristic of the introvert excellent I really am an I fabulous uh so I think it's it's our um natural so on the one hand we can be so grateful that we have an analytical mind because it allows us to solve the kind of problems that we solve you know being engineers being in tech being able to take all of this information and turn it into something that actually means something or to look for patterns of the noise. Like that is such a valuable skill set. And I would never want to not have that. But the terrible things about personality traits is that you always have them and sometimes you apply them to the wrong problem. Mm. And so when you're sitting there like like I do, like torturing myself over something I said four years ago, or like still beating <laughs> myself up about the fact that like this one time I was mean to a kid who didn't deserve it. I genuinely like this, <laughs> this poor guy in middle school, like, sorry Ross, if you're listening, that was really mean. Um but you know, we can't always switch it off, but I think it's knowing and owning, it's back to owning, right? Knowing and owning what your traits are. Yeah. And then being able to say like, maybe this isn't a productive trait for me in this situation. And maybe I should, I should just let, let it go on this one occasion. Mm. I wonder, how do you know when you've reached that limit? Um, I think when I'm unhappy for a long period of time, I've got kind of I mean, this goes into like very like deep philosophy, but I've got kind of a 50, 50 rule about life which is that anything that I do or anyone that I'm friends with or anyone that I have a relationship with or any job that I have so it applies to any situation it should make you happy on average at least 50 percent of the time right and and so I think I just start to reflect like are things am I broadly happy or am I broadly not happy Mm. and then if the answer is broadly not happy in whatever situation job relationship friends hobbies whatever you start to to think about what adjustments you can make. That's and really good. I think it, 
for everyone, it's a little bit different. I mean, I I think that for over analytical people like us, the the act you have to find ways to quiet your mind. Yeah. And I haven't quite um, cracked that. I know a lot of people are into things like mindfulness. I've never found that really works that well for me, but a lot of people think it works for them and that's great. And I would never discourage it. Um, honestly, the, it's so weird, but my most relaxing moments are if I, um, I get on a really, really long train ride, stick my headphones on and just stare out the window for four <laughs> hours. That is absolutely my idea mm. of heaven. And it's like my brain just switches off. It's beautiful. Or a plane where you really can't access your phone and things like that. That is good. Planes are good. I like, I think it's the motion of seeing things out the window for me. It's like something, it like your eyes are occupied, your yeah. ears are occupied. And so like all of your senses kind of have something going on and you've got that constant motion kind of quieting down your physical sensations mm. as well. And everything is very, very gentle and it allows your mind to just kind of relax because there's nothing disturbing coming in. Yeah, it is really hypnotizing. I love it. Yeah, I think maybe, you know, with people with very like overactive or hypersensitive um, senses, you know, we can receive a lot of information and that can just mean that you're processing data all day. Um, That's the way I describe it. Yeah, yeah. It's spot on. And, and, and how disruptive something unexpected coming in can be, because if you're sort of, if your brain has sort of is trying to structure information, something comes in, it's like, well, I have to restructure the whole thing now, whether it's like an unexpected noise or an unexpected meeting. Like I find, I find that quite challenging a lot of the times. Yes, I really, I really understand what you mean. And I also, um, it's, it's, it is beautiful to meditate or practice mindfulness. Um, But when your brain is so overactive with data processing, uh, it can be really challenging to get into a space where you're not wanting to process something. Yeah, I, I have found that I've tried meditation and mindfulness. And there was actually this level of discomfort in trying to get my brain to switch off. And that's probably the whole point of doing it, isn't mm, it? Yeah. To do that. But actually it it I think I'm a bit of a control freak and I I like feeling in control of a situation. And it's like my brain won't give up control in those situations that's saying like, no, 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 I'm gonna keep buzzing. Like don't you dare try to switch me off. And it almost goes into like hyperdrive. Mm. So it's it's I have not yet found the meditation exercise that's going to crack it for me, but maybe I'll I'll keep trying someday. Well, I think this this idea of trains um, is very meditative. Um, you know, I think people can meditate whilst jogging or spinning. You know, so I think there are different ways of like basically um, going into a uh, not hypnotic, but maybe I do mean hypnotic state where you're basically not processing incoming signals, but you're just kind of like, you know, that sort of white noise type of state. I think that the more that I talk to you, the more I think it is the white noise. I think it's why I like trains. And I think it's also why I I find it, um, if I need to listen to music, I just listen to sort of white Mm. noise soundtracks to focus. And I think that what, that so much of meditation traditionally is about sensory deprivation and actually i think that the the best way to quiet my 
hyperactive brain is to provide background levels of stimulus for all my senses so the train's perfect it's basically like white noise for your physical for sort of your sense of touch white noise for your ears white noise for your eyes because you're just watching like the same tree go by over and over and over again and it's like absolutely mesmerizing and then your brain's like okay it's yeah, there. yeah kind totally. of chill now. it's kind of I want to ask you um about gender bias in mechanical engineering but I kind of feel like it's um a really old school question because you just sound like gender doesn't come into uh your world because it's all about just following your heart yeah i think it does though and the older i get the more i realize the subtle ways that it's influenced it so i have not and and like i'd love to talk about it because i think that i've been really really lucky but that doesn't mean that it's been perfect so I'm lucky in the sense that I've never had sort of egregious levels of sexism where someone's like, oh, you can't do this because you're a girl, or at least not since primary mm. school where people are just talking crap, right? Um, Did you not get that in mechanical engineering then? So um, the, the uni I went to was really good because um, it, it's a very tech-focused school and there was actually quite a few women who were in the technology programs. But um, I, I was sort of reading about how sexism can manifest in more subtle ways in academic programs and it really resonated with the way that I experienced the program and also the way that I like to learn and how I think that was kind of taken for me in that when a woman is perceived as struggling especially in an area that she's not automatically assumed to have expertise in like uh, engineering then the 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 people go and help her basically and so Um, you're not given that space to figure things out on your own. And I think that's been something that, one, I think has happened to me my whole life on reflection. And two, um, I think definitely happened to me in my academic career, especially with the more practical skills. And so if if one of the machine shop guys saw you struggling, you know, and they'd, they'd come over and sort of do it for you. And I've experienced this so much throughout my life is people will come over and try to do things for me. And it comes from a very good place of wanting to help. But actually, Mm -hmm. my favorite, favorite way to learn is figuring things out for myself and getting it wrong 17 times before you finally make it work. And I think that there's many, many points in my academic career, especially in mechanical engineering, where I was deprived of the experience of figuring it out for myself. And I regret that. What I'm focusing on is the fact that you wanted to work it out for yourself. Uh, The reason why I'm focusing on that is because if left to my own devices, I definitely find a solution to a problem. But I really stressed myself out in not getting the answer right first time. Absolutely. Or having the, you know, just being, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I get it. But I think, I wonder how much of that stress that we feel is knowing that if we get it wrong the first time that someone's going to step in. And this is something, I feel the same stress about not getting it right the first time. Mm. But it's because so many times when I've gotten it wrong the first time, people are like, oh, I'll just do it now. Yeah. And I'm like, no, like, let me try again. And like, who cares? Slash, this is not life or death. Like, we're not, I'm not deactivating the bomb, you know? Like but where job. did you where did you find the confidence to go? No, no, just let me work it out. I can work this out. Just, just give me a moment. 
I did until years later because I didn't even realize it was happening. So this was something that I read in, um, I don't even remember where I read it, but it was a stat that I read um, a couple of years ago. And I sort of had that moment of, oh my God, this has been happening to me my whole life. I haven't been allowed the space to figure things out for myself, especially when it came to tech. People were always jumping in and helping me. And um, I think that that's what gave me the confidence to tell people to go away. Um, and knowing that it was happening, that awareness that it was happening, and the knowledge that even if I got it wrong 10 times, I wanted the space to figure out how to get it right. Mm. Do you think people then judged you? Um, well, actually, so you were never put off with people saying, oh, she's just being so super independent. She doesn't need any help. Oh, like all the time, men get so touchy about it genuinely. Like if you're like, actually, I'd prefer not. They're like, oh, you don't want my help. And I think men have this thing about yes. like, wanting to feel useful. And there's the whole, it's such a stereotype in relationship that like, if you want to keep your boyfriend happy, just like give him something to do. I really struggle with that. Um, I mean, I really, really struggle with that. It, yeah. Well, I've even gotten it, you know, someone offers to carry my bags up the stairs. I'm like, no, 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 I've got it. And you can see them sort of huff <laughs> off. And I'm like, well... I don't have to let you carry my bags like and I it might be any reason and thank you for your offer of help but actually I don't need it and you see men just looking so dejected because you haven't let them be useful and I'm like well I want to carry my own bags like I go to the gym I'm gonna do it yeah I mean I wonder if there are men out there um who actually appreciate a woman that is self-sufficient because I feel like in society it is this kind of uh there is this assumption that uh, men are sort of like rescuers slash providers slash, or am I just really old school? No, I think it's still a stereotype. I think as with many things, it's become more subtle over time. So the men is no longer expected to be the financial provider, mm. right? Yeah. But I think that there's many other ways in which they still feel like they need to provide and that there are definitely men out there that I think appreciate a self-sufficient woman. Mm. But I think that a lot of my female friends, especially like the really smart, amazing, accomplished ones, have struggled to get into long-term relationships because they can do everything for themselves. Yeah. And men feel very intimidated. And the men are like, where do I fit into this? Yeah, they do. And they're, I think like they don't see an obvious end, so they just give up. Yeah. They're like, oh, she doesn't need me. Yeah, pretty. I think it's pretty much that, but they never admit that. So it's always some other reason, like you know, you're too nice or aggressive. Yeah, uh, you're too aggressive. You're too strong. You're too independent. Um, do you actually even need me? Yeah, you know, it's 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 things like that, and it's like no, I, I really, I must say, I have really um, spent a lot of time trying to understand how I can strike this balance, because. I um, enjoy working things out on my own and figuring it out and, and all of that. And I've definitely got to an age where um, I accept that that's the process I need to go through. Whereas when I was younger, I was like, oh my God, I'm not getting it as quickly as everybody else. Like what's wrong with me? But now I'm just like, okay, um, I know what it is I need to do in order to feel good. And I do really struggle with um, gender roles. Yeah, because I, you know, with the personality that I have, it doesn't mean that I don't want to be treated 
um, appreciated for being a woman. It's so, it's so, so, so hard. And I totally get what you mean by that because Mm. you have to, it's like you have to be on one side or the other. Um, Yes. And, you know, I struggle with this because I've got like a very feminine shape, right? So like I should be wearing like dresses and heels or whatever, but I've actually taken the tack of just wearing like quite gender neutral slash slightly more masculine clothing in any sort of professional situation. Really? Why? Because it does, it makes, it makes a difference because if you are not presenting as super feminine, Mm. and I mean, like, don't get me wrong, like I still look very female and like, no one's going to think that I'm, I'm like a a dude or anything, but you know, by not sending out that image of like, I am very feminine, people will treat you as as more male right off the bat and I have all these little life hacks that I've realized I do to try to seem less feminine in people's eyes because it's just like a shortcut to being treated more respectfully in a professional situation or not I guess not not respectfully but like less patronizingly and it's really weird stuff like I didn't used to like beer so I like beer now (laughs) but what happened is that I realized that in all these, you know, I, w- I was working in tech and all the professional events I went to, the men drank beer and the women drank wine. And so I started drinking beer to see what would happen. And all of a sudden, it's like, you're one of the guys, like they want to buy you oh, a no, pint. Oh no, but it's so drink. fattening. It was just so, <laughs> it's, it does, I mean, like it's fattening or not, it was just so fascinating to be like, if you go out with a group of men that don't know you that well and you order a pint, they're like, you're cool, you're one of us. And it's like this most stupid superficial thing and then I told this to, to one of my old um, bosses and he was like oh yeah I want to know it's horrible I actually prefer wine but I would never drink it at work and it was it was the weirdest thing and I was like yeah so, a male yeah. boss said that I mean to be fair it was like I I had a really good relationship we'd be quite honest with each other and so he was like basically mm. yeah you're on to something I would never drink wine at work because it's seen as like a woman's drink and he's it was just so interesting to have my thinking confirmed there and I would be lying if I didn't still do it because it just feels Mm -hmm. like it's so much more effort to be taken seriously when you could just like one drink and you're in the club it's so weird yeah so on that note then where are you with navigating all aspects of being a woman like where are your plans in terms of like maybe starting a family and that kind of thing god it's so that is such a fraught discussion right now (laughs) I think that I um my sort of stubborn I'm going to be whoever I want to be is like getting the better of me in terms of career progression sometimes because I've seen women get ahead more easily if they were willing to toe the line a little bit more so um you know I I see men getting away with behaviors that I can't get away with as a result I've been penalized professionally not like disciplined just you know not promoted passed over for the raise that kind of thing because people they really like working with you but they're like oh we just can't like see you as the next level up and I'm like why what you know because I Mm. see these other people expressing the same personality characteristics that I do but they're men Mm. um so I think that's been something that I struggle with like to what extent am I willing to compromise my sense of self to get ahead and knowing me the answer is going to be like not at all but then that feeds into that imposter syndrome of seeing other women who are further ahead than me and thinking I'd like to be there but also I'm not willing to make those kind of compromises so where does that leave me so I think that's that's one thing in terms of a family it's a really challenging one I think that 
like my partner and I have kind of agreed that we would like to have had children. Mm. Um, he's aware that it's more of a sacrifice for me than it is for him. And he's actually the kind of guy who would love to, you know, split uh, parental leave 50-50, but um, his company doesn't have a very good policy. And so it sort of becomes the question of, is, is it financially feasible at all for mm. him to do that? Because we'd essentially be on one salary then. And, you know, for me, I'm not sure, other than the sort of social impact it has, is it worth... I, I think that I've realised that subconsciously I view... Um, parenthood is like a career yeah. end point so I've sort of said like whatever I want to be professionally I pretty much got to get it done before I have kids because then life's pretty much yeah. over and I think that that's kind of the the message I've, I've absorbed and maybe it's not a productive message because you always have these women waved in front of you who have you know had super successful careers and <laughs> 17 children and, and whatever girlfriend <laughs> models and, and and all this stuff so I get that it is possible but I also have found out a lot about those women like they have stay-at-home partners or they have parents that can stay at home and look after their children or like other mitigating factors that don't really apply to my life so I do I do wonder a little bit sometimes yeah I mean we've had I've had a couple of those women on the show and they've all said I think it is possible to have it all just not at the same time yeah I think that and so, you know, that means that you can have the career, but once you do have children, you probably have to go part-time and you can pretty much kiss goodbye to the promotion happening anytime soon. Yeah. Um, because pr- kids do become your priority. I think there's that. And then I think that I've had numerous conversations with women who were very senior who had children. And without exception, every single one of them except ones who had parents that would look after the kids said that their partner had taken a step back professionally to let them have the bigger career. Right. And so it was just so interesting. This, you know, I had talked to multiple women who said like, Oh yeah, my partner became a stay at home dad. A couple of women who said that their partner had been the one who agreed to go part time. Um, and then yeah. one or two who've had uh, parents who were just um, willing to look after the kids during the day. And so they're like, well, they don't feel as bad about it because it's their grandparents, not some, not a, a nanny or something. But yeah, it's just really fascinating to to realize that actually this idea that some women just have it all, like a lot of them have very, very supportive partners who've taken a step back. Right. And, and not just supportive partners. The women that I've had on this show that really have been able to have it all, in quotes, is are the women who have literally been the result of generations of fighters, basically. Like the result of generations of assertiveness, um, self-confidence, kind of courage, bravery to sort of stick up for what you believe in I think it's really difficult for women who come from um childhoods where there's been a lot of obstacles to overcome basically I I completely agree and I I 
I see women who haven't had supportive families and how much that's knocked their confidence and mm-hmm. how long it's taken them to get back on their feet in terms of realizing that they are smart, they do have value. And it just breaks my heart to see, you know, how far back that set them. Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's not easy being a woman in STEM, but it sounds like you have navigated it uh, with strength. I'll put it that way. I mean... That is a beautiful phrase. Thank you. Is that how you found it? Or am I turning what I'm hearing from you into a bit of a fairy tale? No, look, I think I've been very, very lucky. I think that I read about things that happen to women in STEM and I haven't experienced a lot of them. And I have to, I don't know why. I think a lot of it's luck, a bit of it's probably personality. So the fact that I have that kind of strength and, and the, my fuck off vibe that I sort of <laughs> described earlier means that I haven't been a target for like harassment as, as much as a lot of other mm. women that I know, which is not to say that it's never happened, but certainly never as severely as it has happened to a lot of my friends. Um, and, you know, I've had, I've been lucky to have very great mentors. I've been lucky with my family. I've been lucky with my friends. So for all the, the challenges that have been there, I've had like one hell of a support mm, network. Yeah. And uh, that's made a huge, huge difference. And and I think that the, the longer that I'm in tech, the more I actually see it shifting, which is not to say that there are no issues because there are buckets of issues. And I'm sure that you get people coming on the show talking about all the problems that there are. And I would absolutely back every single one of those problems being a problem. But what I've noticed is that um, there's this sort of generational shift in how women in STEM are treating each other in the workplace, because I think we've reached a kind of critical mass where we don't have to compete against mm. each other anymore. So when my mom was um, was talking to me when I was younger, she said that she always used to hate working for female bosses because they were brutal and not collaborative and very backstabby. And on the one hand, that's bad. Like, you shouldn't do that. But on the other hand, you see why. Because they were from a generation of women where, like, the only way to get to the top was to claw your way over mm. everyone else there. And so you had to be one a very very masculine kind of leader and two just like absolutely yeah. cutthroat to get anywhere and then they're they sort of as brutal as they were paved the way for the next generation of women who have now started getting enough women into the field that we can see that there's actually quite a few of us here and even compared to five years ago it feels much more collaborative and there have been moments where I've thought this is what it must feel like to have been mm. part of the old boys network in the sense that I've just gone for drinks with women that I don't know that well, and they've said, um, oh, if, if you're interested in doing that, you have to talk to my friend, I'll make an intro. I've you know, been for coffees with people who've gotten me job interviews. It's been um, you know, really inspiring to feel like I'm part of this community of people who really want to stick up for and support each other. And it hasn't felt competitive or cutthroat at all. And I think that's really, really changed. And I think it's sort of the dawn of this new era where we're going to create our own sort of beautiful community of people who are going to, to make sure that we can all get ahead. And then, you know, there's the, the secondary challenge of making sure that that community stays inclusive as well. Because, you know, being what it is, it's still like a very sort of straight white community and we've got to make sure that we open that up and make sure that it's inclusive of everyone who identifies as female who wants to get ahead. Yeah, I mean, 
let's talk about diversity because um, it seems to be quite a fashionable word at the moment. Um, as a person in tech, uh, how significant is diversity? I think it's hugely, it's hugely significant. And it's, it's significant in a lot of different ways. One, you want people who are bringing different kinds of experiences. Um, and you want people who are reflecting whatever customer base you're talking to, um, and who are also going to be able to, to call out problems in tech that other people don't see. And you see all of these case studies that have come out like in the last year of, of tech companies drastically screwing it up because their entire coder and developer base was like straight white men. And you've got like those horrible issues with like the hot or not app or whatever it was called, like turning, um, black faces white to make them hotter and just like really terrible stuff like that where it's like you clearly didn't have anyone of any sort of diverse background working on this so there's that end of it and I think that all the evidence points to more diverse teams performing better and it's also just more interesting to work around people who are different than you I think mm. on, on the flip side I was at, at an event recently um, where a, a very senior chief exec who had um had implemented diversity initiatives pretty successfully in his organization was talking about why diversity was was good and there's all these studies that have come out being like oh there's monetary impacts and there's um you know productivity impacts and i think that's great and he said um i care because it's the right thing to do mm, and yeah. it like you're not allowed to say that it really really feels like you're not allowed to say that like you have to come up for some excuse for why yeah. diversity is a good thing like it's going to make you Usually money with a currency really, sign attached to it yeah it just felt so empowering for him to stand up on the stage and be like it's the right thing to do and i guess that's how i feel about it and at the end of the day the financial impacts are great and the productivity impacts are great and obviously like you make better products that are accessible to a wider range of people but at the end of the day it's like there's there's this huge social element to it where it's like we have kept so many people from success and from contributing to society for so long and like we should do something about it it feels so empowering to listen to you because you really sound like a person who just goes for what she wants I mean my last question was what advice would you have for any young girls who are thinking of going into STEM um, but it almost seems like a weird question because it's not about STEM not STEM it's about something greater than that. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. I, I find you super inspiring. So um, <laughs> that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's, it's been helpful. I guess, the, I think the advice is probably going to sound a bit like what I've said already. The first one is to fearlessly own mm -hmm. yourself. So it doesn't mean that you never have to change things about yourself that you don't like, but that you will constantly be told throughout life that you're doing it wrong because you're not like other people. And that's not a STEM specific thing. It's yeah. just a life thing. But that the things that make you different are what make you valuable. And so you should never be afraid to own those characteristics. And I think in terms of going into STEM specifically to be very, very open-minded about what STEM is. So you probably have far more technical skills that you realize that no one will ever acknowledge because you're a woman and challenge yourself to think about what a man doing the kind of things that you're doing or being interested in the kind of things that you're interested in would be perceived. And you might well find that you actually already are a STEM person mm -hmm. and you just didn't know it yet. 
And so always think critically and make sure that you're not letting society's gender lens impact how you see yourself. Wow, such wise words to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your perspectives with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's it from my STEM guest this week. Gosh, what an uplifting conversation. I don't know where to start. I just feel like my guest is absolutely fearless about who she is um, and the courage and the strength and tenacity that are behind her words have just been truly inspiring. Thank you so much for listening this week. Don't forget to rate and review the show and catch you next week on Silence. <laughs>